Tonight's talk is on the Brahma Viharas. They are the four highest emotions. It's important to develop all four on the path. They're embedded in the Noble Eightfold Path. Loving kindness, compassion, mudita, and equanimity. As you'll recall from the first night, we talked about the fourth noble truth of the four noble truths, which is the noble eightfold path. And there are eight factors on the noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention are the wisdom factors. Action, speech, and livelihood are the ethics factors. Effort, mindfulness, and concentration are considered the concentration factors. And... Uh, the Brahma Viharas are implicit in all three of those the divisions of of the Noble Eightfold Path: wisdom, ethics, and concentration. Uh, and I'll just mention those briefly. Um, in the second factor, right intention, the intention of renunciation, non ill will, and harmlessness uh, to uh, cultivate those intentions um, of uh, renunciation, it's important to cultivate uh, or to generate generosity, which is kind of what the Brahmaviharas are based on, um, a generosity of the spirit. So uh, sort of the underpinning of the Brahmaviharas are implicit in intention of uh, renunciation, letting go. Generosity is letting go. Giving away. Um, and then also in that same factor of right intention is the intention of non-ill will. And uh, to cultivate non-ill will, it's important to generate metta and mudita. Happiness for another's happiness. Instead of resentment for their happiness. And equanimity. And then, um, still in this same factor of right intention is intention of harmlessness. And uh, to cultivate a sense of harmlessness, it helps to generate compassion. Okay, so that's the second factor um, in the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, number two of a lineup of eight, and it's included in the wisdom components. Uh, In the ethics components, we have right action, which are the precepts. And there are advanced practices for each precept. And the Brahma Viharas are implicated in those advanced practices. So it's not just refraining from harming, uh, refraining from taking what's not being offered, uh, refraining from these other precepts. It's the higher practice of the precepts is cultivating the Brahma Viharas. 
So that's in the ethics component. And then you move down to the last three uh, of the eight factors in the Noble Eightfold Path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the Brahma-viharas are implicated in all three of those. These are the right concentration components. So the sixth factor is right effort. And if you'll remember, we talked about making an arisen unwholesome mind state go away, preventing an arisen unwholesome mind state, an unarisen, preventing an unarisen unwholesome mind state from arising. So those are the the first two of the four great efforts under right effort, which deal with unwholesome mind states. But then the second two efforts of the four great efforts deal with wholesome mind states, which are the Brahma-viharas. And as you'll recall, it's the third great effort is to make an unarisen wholesome mind state arise, like metta, if you're in a traffic jam and want to scream at the other cars. You make an unarisen wholesome mind state arise. Brahma-viharas are all wholesome. And then you keep it around and bring it to perfection. Bring the wholesome mind state around keep it around and bring it to perfection. And then you'll remember the prescription that Ayakema has um, that I think fits nicely in with right effort. It's a three-part prescription. She says, recognize when you're in an unwholesome mind state. Don't blame the trigger and substitute a wholesome one for the unwholesome. And you can pick any of the Brahma-viharas as the wholesome mind state to substitute for an unwholesome one. I like that short three-part prescription. Uh, It fits nicely in with right effort, but it also just kind of like has almost the whole entire path embedded in it. Okay, so that's the sixth factor on the Noble Eightfold Path where the Brahma-viharas fit in. The seventh factor is right mindfulness. And we haven't gotten yet to it yet in the morning uh, talks, but we'll, we will soon. Uh, we're on the body now, but we'll be getting to, the, to Vedna, and then we'll be getting to mind states. And one of the, you know, we're instructed in that uh, Satipatthana to be mindful of our mind states. Uh, whether they're exalted or not exalted. And of course, the Brahma-viharas are all exalted. There are different categories of the mind states that we're supposed to be mindful of, and it's not exclusive. Um, But definitely, we want to be mindful of exalted mind states of the Brahma-viharas when we're in them. So that's right mindfulness, the seventh factor. And then the last factor in the Noble Eightfold Path is right concentration, which is what this retreat is all about. And the fourth jhana is equanimity. And of course, that's also the fourth Brahma-vihara. So these Brahma-viharas are embedded in the Noble Eightfold Path, the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering. So it behooves us to learn them 
and practice them and bring them to perfection. So as we talked about on that first morning uh, with regard to metta, the first Brahmavara, it uh, is a Pali word that includes several English definitions. Loving kindness is one, but it also includes unconditional love, goodwill, that's Tanisaro Bhikkhu's favorite way to transcribe metta, friendliness, caring attention, kind regard, and my favorite is complete presence. Whether we're talking about self-metta or metta for another. Offering out of a spirit of generosity our complete presence, either to ourself or another. According to uh, the Vasudhimaga, each Brahmavarhara has a near enemy and a far enemy. The near enemy masquerades as the Brahmavahara, and the far enemy is the opposite, clearly the opposite of the Brahmavahara. And so these are states, if we're in them, that, you know, um, are definitely not the Brahmaviharas, and they are the enemies of the Brahmaviharas. So the near enemy of metta, which masquerades as metta, is desire. Because it can feel so similar. But metta does not try to hold on or control like desire does or can. Metta is desireless. There's no sticky quality to metta. Like I will send you a feeling of, I'll give you a feeling of my love, but I expect this in return. And of course, the far enemy of metta is aversion, which includes fear and anger and hatred and ill will. Any state of aversion is the far enemy of metta. And as many of you know, there are classic categories for sending um, metta and the other Brahmaviharas to different people. Um, typically, there's a list of seven classes of people, but the first and last are ourselves. So there's five in between. And if you're ever in a situation where you're being guided through all these seven classes of people, including ourselves, beginning and end, but you can't quite get the Brahma Vihara for the self, I recommend just staying with the self the whole time and um, seeing if you can work on it throughout the, the meditation. But the, uh, the five in between are typically the benefactor, so somebody who has been very good to us in our lives. 
uh, someone we want to send the gift of metta to. Someone for whom we feel both gratitude and respect. It's better if the person is still alive and it's better if there's no sexual relationship, just the benefactor. Someone for whom we feel gratitude and respect. And then the third, uh, well, the, the second of the five is, um, you know, a beloved. This can be a beloved friend, a beloved partner, a beloved family member, someone we care about. Again, preferably someone who's still alive and with whom you're not in a sexual relationship. And then uh, the third person in this list of five is a neutral person. Someone against whom we hold no judgment. Like, oh, he's a good person, so I really like him, or he's not a good person, so I don't. It's just kind of somebody against whom we hold no judgment. Those people are hard to find. Okay, so that's a neutral person. And then the difficult person. Someone with whom we have an unresolved conflict or towards whom we have a sense of unforgiveness. The difficult person. And then the fifth uh, in the category is all beings. Everywhere, without exclusion. And Sharon Salzberg says, when we can get that, this, this class of all beings everywhere without exclusion, she says that is the foundation for awakening when we can send our metta to all beings and really feel it. So those are the typical five classes of folks we send metta to. And then we begin and end with ourselves. the middle five, the benefactor, the beloved friend, family member, partner, the neutral person, the difficult person, and all beings. Bhikkhu Analio in his book on compassion and emptiness recounts benefits of a regular metta practice. He says you'll sleep peacefully and wake up peacefully. You won't have unpleasant dreams and people will love you. Heavenly beings will protect you and you'll be respected by non-human beings. I think critters can tell if we're loving You won't be harmed by poison, weapons, water, or fire. May it be so. You won't be subject to torture. And you'll be reborn in a good realm. So 
that's some of the benefits of metta. So as I've emphasized throughout, it's a great antidote to its far enemy, aversion. The hindrance of aversion. But I think metta is an antidote to any unwholesome mind state, including aversion, but also greed. Uh, I think a sense of fear underlies greed, and fear is uh, an aversive mind state. So I say pull out metta if you've got that skill uh, and see if it works on any aversive, any, any unwholesome mind state. And metta is a very strong ally. Sharon Salzberg says fear, which is underneath a lot of our emotions, our unwholesome emotions, or mind states. She says, fear cannot uproot love, but love can uproot fear because it's a greater power. So um, no external condition can prevent love. I remember um, months, maybe even a year before my son Justin died, but I knew he was going to, I think his cancer had metastasized. I had the insight, which seems so logical now and made to you, but at the time it wasn't clear how it would work. But I had the insight that I could go on loving him even though he wasn't alive. No external condition can prevent love. And when I had that insight, it was like, oh, yeah, I don't have to stop loving him. And I, as a parent, never cared whether he loved me back anyway, so (laughs) it's working out really well. Okay, so metta. It's the foundation for the other three Brahma-viharas, as I think I said the other morning. In the face of suffering, metta gets... um, I don't know what the word is. Metta gets... um, hmm. Metta changes in the face of suffering to compassion. There's a better word for it than changes, but I can't think of it. And in the face of good fortune, metta becomes mudita. Happiness for another's good fortune or happiness for my own good fortune. So... Whether it's compassion or mudita you're talking about, really, it's just the extension of, of metta, depending on the circumstances, whether it's suffering or good fortune. So you, you learn the skill of metta. Compassion and mudita are at your fingertips. Just extend metta in the face of suffering or good fortune. 
and it transforms into compassion and mudita. And then equanimity is enriched by a a good foundation of metta so that equanimity doesn't become indifference. And I'll talk more about equanimity in a minute. You can uh, send metta anywhere, anytime, whether people know you're doing it or not. In tough situations, to soften your heart. And people pick up on that. I was teaching the Brahma Viharas at a woman's prison in Maryland several years ago. And they were really tough-looking women. I mean, they came and... um, Anyway, uh, I suggested they practice stealth metta to their fellow prisoners. And uh, I went... I had occasion to talked to them afterwards and a couple of them came up to me and they said uh, we can't wait to try it (laughs) Um, somebody's really being bad you know or really being ugly and evil we're going to send them self meta I mean send them stealth meta they really got it In the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, 46.54, the Buddha says that the culmination or perfection of metta, which is what we want to do, we want to keep it around and bring it to perfection. He says the perfection of metta results in a mind of beauty. And Bhikkhu Tanasaro describes that as meaning the fourth jhana of equanimity. So you bring metta to perfection and it translates into a mind of beauty and the fourth jhana, according to Tanisaro Bhikkhu. So there are hindrances to metta, just like there are hindrances to getting into access concentration. And they're based on the hindrances that we've been talking about, the wanting mind and the pushing away mind. Both of those hinder metta. Uh, Just like, you know, your sitting practices so far on this retreat, if you have a wanting mind to have metta, Um, it might keep you from it. So you might have a good metta experience one night and think it's going to be good the next night, but the next night you're just in in a sinking mind all through the metta. But you want it. Um, Or you want life to be filled with only metta. 
This is the wanting mind, the mind of greed. It's a hindrance to metta. You want a mind, a life only of metta with no anger, no fear, no sadness, no pain. That kind of expectation sets us up for a lot of suffering. Okay, so this kind of wanting mind, um, and good antidotes for that are just letting go of expectations. Of course, this is the same for wanting to get into the jhanas, if the wanting mind is a hindrance for that. Just letting go of expectations, letting go of greed, which is a setup for dukkha. Another antidote to this wanting mind is a spirit of generosity that extends both internally and externally. So that generosity of spirit is a letting go. So developing that and looking for ways to develop it, looking for opportunities to be generous to yourself and others is a way of letting go, renunciation. You know, maybe you could see a bit of garbage on the floor that you didn't put there and pick it up. Or these counteract expectations and greed, acts of generosity, internally and externally. Another antidote to the wanting mind is a sense of gratitude. So letting go, generosity, and now gratitude. Instead of focusing on what you don't have or what you can't quite get yet, which is the metta practice or the jhana practice, Focus on what you do have and develop gratitude for it. Metta is an intention of uh, goodwill and you just plant seeds for it and wait for it to grow. Um, just like getting into access to the jhanas, you're planting seeds as you get rid of the hindrances, as you stay with your object and let it let it grow. So that's the hindrance, uh, the wanting mind to metta. And I wove in there a little bit about the jhanas. The not wanting mind is also a hindrance to metta. This is fear and anger and guilt and grief and disappointment and all these kinds of not wanting mind scenarios. Sometimes when we get caught up in aversion, we don't have the presence of mind in real time to extend metta, either outwardly or inwardly, to counteract the aversion. So... If you can't do it in real time, a good after-the-fact practice is forgiveness, either for yourself or the other person. 
And there's a good uh, three-part forgiveness practice I'll share with you that I've come across that really is helpful. It's um, first, I'll just say the three of them, then I'll talk a little about each of the parts, but it's a three-part forgiveness practice. First, ask forgiveness from people I have harmed. I mean, it's, it's not just... I'm, I also do things that need forgiving. So ask forgiveness from those I have harmed. And this is an internal ask. It's not an external ask. Then offer forgiveness to those who have harmed me. And the third one is offer forgiveness to myself. So you ask forgiveness from people you've harmed. Uh, and it can be specific, you know. This is an, again, it's an internal process. You can do it in your journal or just do it with your eyes closed. But it, it can be specific or general. If a general statement might be something like, if I have hurt or harmed anyone, I ask for their forgiveness. Or bring someone specific to mind and silently ask for theirs. That's the first part of the forgiveness practice. The second part is offering forgiveness to those have, who have harmed me. And again, this is silent. And don't forget worry if you can't quite summon the feeling of forgiveness yet. It's enough to just set the intention to forgive. And it too can be specific or general. If anyone has hurt or harmed me, I forgive them. But chances are if you're doing this practice, you have something specific in mind and go ahead and see if you can set an intention at least to forgive them to open and soften your heart. And then the third part of this forgiveness practice is to offer forgiveness to yourself. If there are ways I have harmed myself or not loved myself or not lived up to my own expectations, I offer forgiveness to myself. This can be specific or general too. A general statement might be, for all the ways I have hurt or harmed myself, I offer forgiveness. I really like this three-part forgiveness exercise because it acknowledges that we, like the person who's hurt us, have hurt others too. That's the first part. Ask forgiveness from those who I have harmed. So we acknowledge that we're not so different. So we've harmed others, and the last step is we've harmed ourselves. So sandwiched in between those two are the forgiveness for the person that's kind of triggered us. But on either end of forgiving the other, we're forgiving, we're acknowledging that we have harmed others and we have harmed ourselves. So this person in the middle who's harmed us is not so different. Um, 
when you're first learning to send metta to a difficult person, by the way, it's good to um, start with someone for whom the difficulty is mild. You don't have to bring out the big guns right away. Just, you know, the mild one first is fine. And approach sending metta to difficult people with a lot of care and compassion for yourself. And if you can, try to separate their actions from their person. Um, I started meditating around the same time I became a federal prosecutor, and I um, remember somehow, I, I'm sure my practice informed me, but um, I prosecuted their actions, not their person. And I had defense lawyers call me and thank me for treating their clients with dignity. But I was able to separate that out. And I did that same with my kids. I separated their actions from their person. I never I tried never to make them feel bad. Just just that their actions weren't acceptable. So I offer that to you too for the difficult people in your life. Most of us really just want to be happy. And so when we send a wish of happiness for the difficult person, may you be happy. Maybe if this difficult person were, were more happy or free from suffering, she or he wouldn't cause so much suffering in the world, if that's the case. Somebody came up to me once after a sit in Falls Church that I was leading one Sunday morning, and she said, I couldn't send happiness to my difficult person. And I said, I I understand. I said, but if they were more happy, do you think they'd be as difficult? (laughs) And also, you know, if they were awakened, do you think they would be as difficult? Because wishing for someone's happiness, in a way, is also wishing that they have no more suffering. And if that's a symptom of being awakened. So aren't we also wishing for their enlightenment? Another thing that can help help with sending a metta to a difficult person is reflecting on their suffering. Okay, so that's metta, compassion. Metta is sent for no reason. Compassion is sent because there's suffering. So, uh, in the face of suffering, metta transforms into compassion. And again, it can be my suffering or another's self-compassion or other compassion. It's the loving heart's response to suffering without 
aversion. Examples of phrases for compassion. May you be free of sorrow and pain. May you find peace. An example of a kinesthetic or body-centered compassion might be Tonglen, the Tibetan practice of breathing in suffering and breathing out love. And the near enemy of compassion, which masquerades as it, is pity. Like in response to homeless people, somebody less fortunate than us. And the far enemy is cruelty in the face of suffering. Compassion is not a sign of weakness. It takes a lot of strength and courage to be present to suffering without aversion. It's bearing witness without fear. So to fully develop compassion requires extending the capacity to extend it to all beings without exception. And Albert Einstein, in the Einstein paper, said this, A human being is part of the whole, which is called by us the universe. This part of the whole, this human being, is limited in time and space but he nevertheless experiences himself, his thoughts, his feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So when we can do that, embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature, We break free of the delusion of separateness. But typically we're afraid in the face of suffering and denial in denial of suffering out of fear. We can't be present to another's suffering. We're afraid that It could happen to us, and we don't want to consider that. We can't be present to our own fear, like the knowledge that we'll die. So we need to learn to open to the difficulties of life 
and establish an appropriate relationship with suffering? Can we be open to pain, even if our heart is quivering? Can we open to pain, especially with a quivering heart? Perfected compassion has a quality of equanimity to it, so there's no aversion and there's no enmeshment. And can we be present to someone's pain without needing to fix it or diminish it? Um, can we be present to someone else's pain without wanting to talk about our own pain? Oh, that reminds me of the time when I... And really, the person just wants us to be completely present to their pain. But we hijack it because we can't. Sometimes you hear, well, if, if humans are not self, why have compassion towards them? But the teaching on not self doesn't mean there are no living beings. The teaching on not self is that beings do not have an unconditioned self. Teaching on not self is that beings do not have a permanent self. When we extend compassion, we do it knowing that we're all impermanent. We do it knowing that we're all conditioned. But that, and that does not diminish our compassion. If anything, it may increase it. If we do it from a place of seeing the big picture. So... How does the Brahma-vihara of compassion look when it's perfected? In that same sutta that I read from earlier with regard to metta, it says the culmination or perfection of compassion results in the fifth jhana of infinite spaciousness. Which makes sense in light of the Kalama Sutta, um, in which the Buddha radiates the Brahma-viharas in all directions. Kind of like infinite spaciousness. So that's the perfection of compassion. Infinite spaciousness. And according to Analio, Bhikkhu Analio, he says that cultivating the perception of infinite space can be a gateway to the gradual experience of emptiness. And he says, residing uh, in emptiness has a remarkable potential to lead to dispassion and detachment, the two of the last steps leading to nibbana. So infinite space, or compassion, infinite space, residing in emptiness, 
dispassion and detachment, Nibbana. So practice compassion, bring it to perfection. Mudita. Mudita is metta extended in the face of good fortune, one's own or another's. Happiness for another's happiness. Just like compassion, mudita is the loving heart's response, but instead of to suffering, it's to good fortune. With regard to one's happiness for oneself, one's own happiness, it is the ability to be happy without a demand for more. It has a quality of equanimity to it. And with regard to one's happiness for another's happiness, it's the ability to be happy without comparing mind, without jealousy. Again, it has a quality of equanimity to it. Mudita. This mind state is so rare in our culture that we don't have a name for it. Mudita is the Pali word. It's a beautiful word. I love saying it. But there's just no English word for it. And we miss out on a lot of joy by not cultivating mudita. Because it's happiness for, good, for the good fortune that someone experiences. Instead, we get jealous or have ill will. The near enemy of mudita is said to be exuberance which masquerades as mudita, like maybe if your favorite team wins and you're rioting in the streets or something like that. That would be a sense of exuberance that masquerades as mudita. And, of course, the far enemy is resentment or jealousy. And examples of of the phrases for mudita are, may your happiness continue, may your happiness grow, May my happiness continue. May my happiness grow. And those are two different things, continue and grow. Happiness growing gets, you know, happiness continuing continues on, but happiness growing gets bigger as it continues. So may it continue and may it grow. So an example of an energetic mudita might be suffusing the body with this happiness for another's happiness, like the second jhana. Mudita is considered, interestingly enough, the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas. Maybe that's why we don't have a name for it in English. It's just not that common. Some say that the comparing mind is the last to go before enlightenment. And indeed, that's what we usually get into when someone else has good fortune instead of mudita. But once it's developed, it has a lot of potency. It has the power to defeat many kinds of negativity towards others. Judgment about how they should live, their lives, 
comparing mind with regard to competition, prejudice when we don't think someone should have good fortune, a diminishing mind state, wishing for the diminishment of another's good fortune, and envy, the inability to endure the success that someone else has had. It also defeats avarice or extreme selfishness. Uh, You want to conceal things in order not to have to share them. My own lack of mudita happened when I was uh, a federal prosecutor. Um, I was trying cases right and left, and I was the only woman prosecutor in my office. And, you know, I had a lot of success with it. Um, But I remember one time in particular when a male colleague of mine was waiting for the jury to come back with what he hoped would be a guilty verdict. Um against a defendant he had just finished prosecuting and trying a case against. And it takes a lot of effort to try a case, and you have all kinds of things to put together and get ready to go with. And the whole office was kind of waiting. It wasn't that big of an office, and we all knew he had just tried a case, and we were all waiting. And I was secretly hoping that jury would come back with a not guilty verdict, not because I thought the defendant was innocent, but because I didn't want my colleague to win. Because there was just so much, you know, so many gold stars. And if he got one, that meant that I would have one less. That's not mudita. And who was suffering in that scenario? Me. Yeah, exactly. The happiness of even our enemy's happiness is not going to take away from ours. Mudita gladdens the mind, arouses delight, puts one in a joyful frame of mind. Why wouldn't we want to experience it instead of jealousy and ill will? So look for opportunities to experience mudita. A dog wagging its tail. You know, they're having good fortune somehow. <laughs> or a baby's laughter. Or, you know, a teenager's new car. A partner's accolade at work. We miss out on so much joy when we let our minds default to envy and jealousy. That same sutta, in the Samyutta Nikaya, in the Init, the Buddha says that the perfection of mudita results in the sixth jhana of infinite consciousness. Again, a gateway to the gradual development of emptiness. So, mudita, the realm of infinite consciousness, at its perfection. Equanimity. Well, as we know, it's a mind that is still and quiet. That's what we put our attention on in the fourth jhana, the quiet stillness. 
It's a mind that faces both good fortune and bad with unshakable balance. So both um, suffering and good fortune. Equanimity faces both with balance. Christina Feldman in her book Boundless Heart says, Equanimity is the ability to be responsive yet unbroken. The near enemy of uh, equanimity, which masks arrays as equanimity, is indifference. And, of course, it's not. Indifference is a state of withdrawal. Uh, And then the far enemy of equanimity is, they say, restlessness in response to the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs of life, being restless. Examples of phrases of equanimity... Some I like better than others, but the first one is, and the traditional one, is all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their actions, not on my wishes for them. That's one. Another one is, may we all accept things as they are. Another one is, I will care for you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. And there's two more. May I embrace change with stillness and calm. And may I deeply accept this moment as it is. A nice visual for equanimity um, is a mountaintop uh, with weather systems swirling all around it. But the mountain is just unshakable. And an energetic response might be a body radiating acceptance. It's said that the self is the most challenging person of all the five categories to send equanimity to. So you might want to look at that. It's the balanced response to the ups and downs of life, the eight vicissitudes of life, like gain and loss. This can be finances or material possessions. So it's the balanced response to the gain and loss of those things, to praise and blame. Even Jesus was subject to praise and blame. Fame and disrepute which exist only in the minds of others, fame and disrepute. And then the final pairing of the eight vicissitudes, pleasure and pain. Remembering that the pleasurable stuff is impermanent will help and maintaining confidence that the unpleasant stuff is impermanent too will also help. Without insight into equanimity, We're always chasing pleasure and repelling pain. 
pain is inevitable in life, right? And suffering is a choice. So with an equanimous mind, we can feel pain fully, ours or another's, without aversion. And without searching for pleasure to indulge in to suppress the pain. And likewise, we can feel pleasure fully without craving and clinging. Sharon Salzberg says, equanimity is the miracle of non-reactivity. And in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha says, the perfection of equanimity culminates in the seventh jhana, the sphere of no-thingness. And you can combine your um, equanimity practice with the other Brahma-viharas. So you may start with metta or compassion or mudita, but at some time, try switching to equanimity and see how it affects the first Brahma-vihara you were practicing. Sharon Salzberg says that after you switch, you'll find that the spirit of love and compassion and joy is balanced by equanimity. And that equanimity, in turn, is enriched by each of the others. And the practice of these four together will lead to a deep feeling of well-being that is not dependent on conditions. So that's the talk on the Brahma Viharas, and I'm going to take questions tomorrow on them.